when you think about the signs of life, some of you guys maybe doctors are into science. What are like the top six signs that you're that you're alive? One would be breathing. Another would be blood pressure. Another one would be body heat, there's temperature, right? Um, you have a pulse, you have movement, you have speech. These are indicators of life. Um, <clears throat> this next thing I share, I got permission from my son, Emmanuel Manny, and <clears throat> I got permission because in our family, if I don't, if I use one of our families as an illustration, I need to ask permission in advance or else they'll ask for royalties. That's how it works in our family. Some preachers just talk about the kids all the time and no royalties, but in our family there's royalties. You gotta ask this son, Manny, for, for permission. So, on a, in February 2018, my son Manny, Tracy's son too, uh, rushed. That's how it works, right? Yeah. He was rushed to the Oakland Hospital, um, to the ER. Um, what'd I say? Oh, yeah, I get mixed up in decades. 2008, um, it was like an episode of ER. Manny had turned limp, he turned blue, kind of cold, and <clears throat> that's what was going on with him. He's about four or five weeks old. His grandma noticed it. Tracy and grandma made a decision called the ambulance, and they came to rush him to the hospital. They rushed him <coughs> in quickly, they sent him down in the emergency room and we noticed the doctors and the nurses were working real frantically because um, he wasn't doing very well at all. I was looking, Tracy and I were it actually followed the ambulance into the ambulance for, into the ER room and we're standing to the side and we're looking at the monitor and it was like, you know, and then it went flat line, totally flat. That meant he had no heartbeat at all. And so I looked at the, the nurses and the doctors, and they started working frantically or intensely or more professionally, whatever you want to call it. But they're definitely in overdrive because Manny's heartbeat had flattened. Um, they, they had this big thing that they're compressing air into his lungs with a little mouth thing that's really small to fit his little four-week mouth. Um, they're throwing in epi into him, and they were... <coughs> Doing the shocks one time, no, nothing happened. Shock again, two times, nothing happened. Three times, boom, flat line changes to a pulse, a heartbeat now exists. Tracy and I are just standing there in shocked disbelief and praying at the same time, praying that God would do a miracle. And we literally saw a miracle at that same moment. And so, Afterwards, we had much thanks and appreciation to the ER team. So why do I share this, and why did I ask Manny for permission? Because in a very similar way, um, human beings, we are born technically spiritually flatlined. We are dead in our sins and trespasses, trespasses and sins. And it takes the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to awaken, to make someone to go from being spiritually dead to be spiritually alive. And so this is only what the gospel of Jesus Christ can produce. And so we're going to look at these, this early section of chapter 1, and we'll see how the Spirit of God worked and how Paul and Timothy responded in in thanksgiving and much more as they looked at the life of the gospel being played out in the church of Colorado.
gospel-centered prayers. And so the first part we're going to look at is the practice of a gospel-centered pulse. They have a pulse that resonates, in one sense, with the gospel. We're looking at verses 3 to 6 right now. The first thing I want you to see is that Paul and Timothy are represented in verse 3 as we. we they're talking together, they're writing together, they're saying we, and they're saying that with an expression of, I'll call it a gospel pulse. And the gospel pulse is recognizing what the Lord has done in the life of these believers. How so? Well, they give thanks specifically to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ when they pray for the church of Colossae. Okay? They have a, an instinct to give thanks ever since they heard about them, heard how they came to faith, heard how they turned from their sins and turned to Christ. How they began praying and giving thanks since they heard that they truly received the gift of Jesus Christ in salvation. And so they went from one that was lost to one who was found, the one who was in need of ransom to being redeemed. And so we see that when Paul and Timothy heard this, they gave thanks. This is a big deal. Like, I've seen some churches that they pray, and they work really hard praying. It's, it's the labor and work of praying, praying in faith. And when someone comes to Christ, the whole church rejoices. And it's exciting. I've also been to churches where people come to Christ, and people are like, who cares? Like, they just don't even care, because they don't get what just happened. That this person came to Christ, and so there's no giving thanks to God, because they don't care. Because Probably because they don't understand what has happened to them personally when God changed their life. Or maybe God hasn't changed their life. So that's why they really don't care, because they've never experienced the change of Christ in their life. That's probably more likely the case, why they don't give thanks. Or they're just not thankful. Um, and the second area is the pulse of a genuine faith. Um, as a believer who has received the gospel, <coughs> one of the indicators to know that you're a Christian is that you have a genuine faith. Um, Paul draws this idea out several times, and I'll just point them out to you really quickly. The most basic form of spiritual life or having a spiritual pulse, pulse is that you have genuine faith. We see in verse 4b that they have faith in Christ Jesus. We see in verse 5b they heard they have heard the word of truth, the gospel. So there's a hearing, there's a receiving of God's word in that sense. And then the last part of verse 6, they heard it, they heard the gospel, and they understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul is really basically saying the same thing three times. The long and short of it is the church of Colossae have received, have believed, have trusted, and placed it, placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, they received the good news. Um, the good news or the gospel um, in classical Greek is basically refers to the good news of victory in battle. In our case, for Christians, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, finished work on the cross, paying for the penalty of sin, um, having victory over sin and death. And that's the victory we rejoice in, in light of the gospel. But I want to take the gospel and, and broaden it, just give us a bigger picture of it. Um, in order to understand good news, also you must understand what? 
running a hellbound race, running toward hell. Um, the Bible also says that God has created you in His image and made you for worship. But when sin entered into um, this world through one man's sin, particularly Adam and Eve, um, now our relationship has been broken. This image of, that God has been ma has made us in is now shattered, and so we look at God um, with a distorted perspective. And we also, because the image of God has been shattered, us we we see things and experience things in a distorted way. And so that's the bad bad news: is that we are born sinners. We are not holy. We are spiritually impoverished, bankrupt before a holy God. We have nothing good can offer or, or merit before a holy and righteous God. And so that's a, a bad situation. It's very bleak. It's worse than a hurricane hitting your earthquake, swallowing your, your home. It's worse than having no financial means because before a holy God, you are in a very... A desperate situation being spiritually dead. And so the good news of Jesus Christ is that he lived the perfect life. He obeyed all the laws so that he would be the perfect and acceptable Lamb of God and that by faith in Christ, Christ alone, you can be saved. And so we see in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay? Grace is unmerited favor. You can't do anything to earn this favor, but God kindly gives it to you. Um, the salvation is given through the vehicle of faith, not through the vehicle of self-righteousness or practicing some religion or doing a whole bunch of good deeds. It's simply given, transmitted, exchanged by the means of the vehicle of faith. I didn't pick this. God picked this. He simply says, have faith and trust in what Christ has done on the cross. Paul goes on in this passage. He says, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's freely given. Um, and what is freely given? The faith is freely given. The repentance is also freely given if you consider Acts chapter 3 verse 19, I believe. So this is a gift freely given by God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk within, with, walk in them. So, what does this post look like? It looks like you are alive in Christ. You put faith in Christ. You have saving faith, and that's the initial seed. And now, when you trust Jesus Christ, you begin to walk in faith. And so that's living faith, or, or walking faith, if you would. And so, um, this, is, this was evident in the life of the church of Colossae. And this is one thing why Paul and Timothy are giving thanks and praise. Um, Warren Worsby makes a side comment, but relevant at the same time. He says, everybody <coughs> has faith in something, which is so true. We all have faith in something. But faith is only good as the object in which a person puts his trust. The pagan, the, the, excuse me, the jungle pagans worship a god of stone. The educated city pagan worships money and possessions or status. In both cases, faith is empty. The true Christian believer has faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith is based on the word of truth. Any
any other kind of faith is but superstition. It cannot save. And so I want to point out the Church of Colossae gave evidence they had a pulse that indicated that they were alive in Christ by virtue of their faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And so I think they realized and recognized that they were what? Dead in the trespasses. That's the bad news. And now they have been made alive through the good news of Jesus Christ. And for that very reason, Paul is giving thanks along we also see in verse 4 is that an, another pulse that they indicate that they have is that they have love for all the saints. If you remember last week we did the introduction and we found out the church of Colossae was filled with people of different backgrounds, namely Jewish and Gentile people. They were different people. They had different backgrounds. And so I bring that up because their background, well, is still the same, but it has changed by one important they have become Christians. They have become children of God. They have been adopted by God's grace. Now fathers, excuse me, now they're sons and daughters with the same heavenly father. And so they look around, and by virtue of faith, they're all saints. And so they're loving those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. They've been called out and made been made holy and separated for God's holy purposes. And so we see that the church of Colossae, they recognize now what? We're not talking to each other, you Jew or you Gentile. No, you're my brother and my sister. We, we, are, we are saints. We are part of the same family. And so that's key um, for love that they are pouring out to each other. They're seeking to build each other up. They're seeking, they're seeking to love each other. Um, not by their own effort, their own strength, or they're not trying to love each other because I'm a Jew and you're a Jew, or whatever. Love each other based on the fact that God made them part of the same family. And so they're committed to having a strong, loving relationship. Not only that, they had the pulse of a guaranteed hope of heaven. Okay? Um, <clears throat> the word laid up here, laid up for you in heaven, means to store up in heaven or to be reserved in heaven. And so these believers know that their hope is what? Not in the world. It's not in their job. It's not in their finances. It's not in their heritage. Their hope is in heaven. And because that they know, because they know their future hope is in heaven, they constantly care about other believers and those who don't know Jesus Christ because of the reality of their future hope. And so they have that in mind, that <coughs> their security is there, and they want to do everything in the present life in light of the life to come. And because of that truth, I think it makes them think carefully about what they do, how they spend their time, how they count their costs. And for us, um, just for those of you who are new, um, we are in a season where Rooted Church and Reedy Creek are getting to know each other. We're singing together, we're praying together, we're praising to God together, we're hearing God's word together. And my hope is that as we relate, we would not be relating to each other on the basis of a convenient relationship, sharing a building or sharing a time, but that we would truly relate to each other based on the gospel, based on the same hope we have in heaven, based on the fact that we are saints and followers of Christ. And we also see in, the la in, the, in verse 6, that another aspect of gospel life, another pulse, and we see um, fruit that is bearing from the gospel.
come to you as indeed in the whole world it, referring back to the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. So this gospel is meant for everyone, not just a certain people group. I want you to know I have been to certain churches that are a certain ethnic bent, and it's funny. They receive the gospel knowing it's for all people, but for whatever reason, if they're an ethnic church, they just kind of think it's just for this group, and it's really goofy. Um, they, they think in a very narrow way. But John MacArthur and Paul make it very clear that the gospel was never intended for an ex exclusive group of people. It is the good news for the whole world. It transcends all ethnic, geographic, cultural, and political barriers. So Paul is making this point that the gospel is bearing fruit everywhere, all around the world. And so that's happening um, universally. But we also see that God is bearing fruit through the gospel among you in this passage. So he's looking, <coughs> Paul and Timothy are looking at the church of Colossae, and he, they're able to discern fruit. When I say fruit, it's evidences of God's grace. It's evidence of God's saving work in their life. It's evidence of transformation happening in the lives of the believers here at the church of Colossae. So you see individual fruit and you see universal fruit in play. You know someone is alive um, in Christ when you see evidences of fruit. They look more like Jesus than they did before. And their hope is in a different place, and they have a love for the saints. They're not just trying to put up with one another. That's what the culture club does, or that's what your Greek club does, or whatever on campus. But they truly have love for each other, because the Spirit of God has been poured out in this local church. Number two, or practice number two, is significant. Um, they have here a partnership in verse 7 and 8. So they don't just receive the gospel and say, hey, I'm just done, and take it in a selfish way. I'm just, yeah, I'm saved. I got fire insurance. I'm not going to hell. And I got a, a bunch of buddies that I can hang out. We call each other saints. We're family. No, this partnership goes deeper, and it goes further. And I want you to see, and I brought it up a little bit last week in the introduction, but we'll look at it again in verse 7 and 8. Paul says, Paul and Timothy say this here in verse 7. It says, just as you learned it, going back to the gospel, from Epaphras, our fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The first thing I want you to see is that Epaphras, if we know a little bit of the background, was from the Church of Colossae. He made a long 1,300-mile trip to see Paul in Rome, in prison. And he cares so much that he takes this letter all the way back. I mean, think about how they traveled in those days. No planes, no trains, <laughs> no Zoom. Um, <clears throat> they were mostly walking. You know, they might have had a horse or donkey in those days, but he makes a long trip back. And it's because, what? Epaphras cared for his people at the church of Colossae. He didn't say, hey, you know, I'm, I just want to hang on Paul, and we're going to start the church of Rome out there with Paul. And No, he went 1,300 miles back to the church of Colossae. 
And he didn't just go there. And he didn't just go to the church of Colossae. There was no church of Colossae. It was just a city. It was a city. It was a pagan city. No one believing in the city. And I want you to know, there was no music team there. <laughs> there was no worship team. There was no children's ministry. There were no elders or deacons at this place yet. There was ground zero ministry. Okay? He went where the gospel needed to go, where there was no one there. There was no church at the church of Ephesus at this time. And he, I mean, he could have went to some existing church that was big and, well, I want you to know in the beginning of the first century, they had no children's ministry. The children's ministry was the whole ministry and the parents to the ministry and the whole body to the whole body, which included children's teenagers and senior saints. Um, I want you to know, just I'm just giving you free stuff for now. I'm having fun with this. This idea of children's ministry, teens ministry, college ministry had, <clears throat> did not come around until the church started to follow the world. It's the world in which you see schools segmented in age categories. And that's just an invention within the last hundred years. Think hard on this. That means from <clears throat> Jesus' inception of the church, we'll say at Pentecost till a hundred years ago, church was done in one family group. Munch on that. It, it, it just was. It was in one building, in one gathering place. This, what we see today is unique because the church has sought to follow the school system. So, much on that. That's the kind of, so he's not even going to that kind of church. He's just going to nothing. There's nothing at the church of Colossae. So that, that, look, I want you to see the type of faith that a pastor has. He comes to Christ. He receives the gospel. I want you to know, he didn't go to seminary very long because there was no seminary there to go to him. He just got basic truth of the gospel from Paul. And he took whatever he had, and he went to the church of Colossae. And we see what? Well, he discipled them. How do we know that? Because it says, just as you learned from Epaphras. This word learned in Colossians 1, 7 is the same word we get disciple in the Greek language. It's also the same word we find in Matthew eleven twenty nine, where Jesus says, learn from me. So in effect, Paul... I believe, had a short discipleship time with Epaphras. And Epaphras is committed to not just seeing conversions in the life of the church of Ephesus. He's also committed to teaching them, to discipling them, and that they would know what it means and what it looks like that Christ would be supreme in their lives, in their church, in their home, in their workplace, and so forth. He wasn't going to just say, hey, you know, you come to, came to faith, now you're a baby, I'm just going to leave you alone just to sit there by yourself. No, he was committed to see them to grow into maturity in Christ. And so we see that he's a committed discipler. Um, when people come to faith in the life of our Lord, we, we want to train you. <laughs> we don't want you to stay as baby infants and act like toddlers for the rest of your Christian life. We want you to grow up into Christ and to maturity and bear fruit. We see also that in verse 7b that um, Epaphras was a servant. Um, we see that he was a servant of Jesus Christ. We see that he was a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So that means that he was a willing servant. He wasn't um, forced to do it. He wasn't coerced. He wasn't paid to do this. He 
see in the latter part of verse 7 that Epaphras was faithful. He was faithful. He was faithful to Jesus Christ. He was faithful to the gospel. He was faithful to utilize what he knew, the skills and the time and the abilities that he had with the people that God had called them to. He didn't waste it. He was faithful. And he wanted Christ to be preeminent in his life. And so that's what it looked like for him to exercise faithfulness with the perspective that one day that Jesus would say, well done, my good and faithful servant. In, the, in verse 8, we see that as the pastor's ministered, he has made known to us, referring back to Paul and Timothy, your love in the Spirit. He's saying to the church of Colossae, you're not functioning in the flesh. You're functioning in the Spirit. Um, you're loving with a love that comes from the Spirit of God working in your lives with one another and with each other. And so that's what's happening here. Um, this is agape love. This is a sacrificial love. This is love that's manifested and demonstrated in the context of community and relationships. So in summary, practice number one, we see that the early church, this local church, the church of Colossae, had a spiritual pulse. We see that they're committed to education, to training, to partnering and discipling um, for, the God, <coughs> for God's glory through discipleship. And they did so with a spirit of love. Thirdly, um, we see that uh, gospel, uh, par gospel partnership, gospel-centered prayer. And so we're going to look at how they prayed. And this is fascinating. And I'm going to take a drink because I need to take a breath. And you'll see how they prayed. I want, to, I want you to notice their prayer. And I want you to ask this question as we walk into the section. Are they praying for physical things or spiritual things? Okay, when I say physical things, broken leg, sick somebody, you know, I have COVID, I have, co you know, diabetes. Are they praying for those kind of things? Or are they praying for something spiritual? So I want you to see this as we walk through this. Um, because, <clears throat> and so I'm not going to answer the question. I want you to see it. So in verse 9, we see a prayer as Paul is instinctually praying for spiritual intelligence. In verse 9, he says this, And so, from the day we heard, from the very beginning, they heard from Epaphras. <clears throat> At that point, they say, Paul and Timothy say, We have not ceased to pray for you. We see a constant praying by Paul and Timothy asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of the will of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so their mindset is constantly thinking about praying. They're ready to pray at any time. Um, this is kind of like my professor, professor said back in the day. They have a readiness to pray at any time. It's kind of like a gas stove. It's ready to light up at any time once you trigger it with a spark. In the same way, Paul and Timothy had the spirit of prayer. At any moment when you needed prayer, they were ready to pray for um, you or the saints that they were serving and ministering. And so in this case, we see them constantly praying. And so what do 
did they pray for? Well, we see three things in verse 9 in terms of what they prayed for. They prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of His will, God's will. Well, how, do you be fi how are you filled with the knowledge of His will? As well, through the Word of God. The idea of be filled is in the aorist passive subjunctive. In other words, um, <clears throat> it means to be completely filled, to be con totally controlled by the knowledge of God, by God's Word. And so the idea here is that you would have the mind of God, that you would know the Word of God in such a way that it fills you, and, it, <clears throat> and your thoughts are the thoughts of God, thoughts of Christ through His Word. And so you know His Word, but it doesn't stop there and says, hey, I know this in my mind. I know Christology. I know pneumatology. What's pneumatology? Well, it's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. He also says he knows it in all spiritual wisdom. <laughs> the word, the Greek word for wisdom here is Sophia. And it's basically to know how to take the word of God that you know and to apply it in the right situation. And that's key. That's important. And it says that he knows <coughs> how to apply in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It speaks of a, a clear analysis in their decision making, in their various attempts and applications of God's word. And so wisdom and understanding is key. And so this is what Paul prays for. As you think through your situations in life, the struggles you're facing, Am I applying biblical, godly wisdom and understanding as I'm relating to people around me and the situations that you find yourself in? In verse 10, Paul also prays for a worthy walk. A worthy walk. We see in verse 10, Paul prayed that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So they're called to walk a worthy walk. <clears throat> this is their pattern of life. Um, <clears throat> whether at home, at work, at school, when no one humanly is looking or cameras looking these days, their mindset is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To please Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe an idea of what it means to walk. I'll draw out an illustration here. The idea of worthy it means equal in weight to the standards of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are the standards of Jesus Christ? Be holy as I am holy. So that's set apart to his purposes. Um, some of you have just started school, and as you go to school, you are to probably sign up, sign these different conduct agreements, whether you're at State or Chapel Hill. And so you are to walk as a Tar Heel. A pack. There's a way that you're to represent your school. At a much higher level, on God's level, you are to walk in a manner of the gospel. And so, as you do that, the pastor says you're bearing fruit in every good work. Uh, you're bearing the fruit of righteousness. God saves you, and he transfers his righteousness to you when you had no righteousness, and then he calls you to practice his righteousness to have a conduct of right living. And if you go through some, some of the scriptures, some of the ways we practice right living or spiritual fruit is leading people or pointing people to Jesus Christ, um, praising God, um, giving generously for God's kingdom, living godly lives, um, bearing um, spiritual
spiritual fruit as in Galatians. And we see later on in this passage, he says that you are to increase in knowledge, um, knowledge of God. And so we see, it's not just a, hey, I came, I know the basics, the ABCs of the faith, but it's the A through Zs. I am growing in deeper and deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ and the application of how to apply the gospel to everyday life. Um, some of this evidence looks like a deeper hunger for God's word. Um, the foundation of your life is more firm. So when trials and different things happen in your life, you're not shaken up. You don't flip out. Um, <coughs> your, your faith um, is able to stir and to press on in trials. You're not crumbling and falling apart. Greater love for one another. So these are some ways in which uh, the evidence of growing faith and fruitfulness looks like. We see also in verses 11 through 13 that they're praying for power to be empowered. Um, the Christian life is a struggle, and I'll say the struggle is what? It's real, right? The struggle is real. We, had, we face many temptations, many challenges, uh, many hardships. Um, in fact, I expect the Christian life to be harder than before you're a Christian because you're basically saying, I'm going to follow Jesus and be a part of his team. That means who's against you? Satan and all his demons hate your guts and want to do everything to take you down. And also, it's not just Satan and demons. The whole world is set up to distract you and to take you down too. So Paul has a very specific prayer with this in mind. He cares deeply about you, and he wants you to know that you have an immense resource on your behalf to fight sin. Okay? And so he's praying that you would be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. This is a big-time prayer request. I want you to see that. He's praying that you would be strengthened, that you would be able to obey God, to, to bear fruit. He's praying that your roots would be super deep in the gospel so that you would reflect it. The word strengthen here comes from our English word dynamite. He's saying, hey, I want you have, to have dynamite spiritual power residing in your spirit to help you to obey God in the most difficult situation. So if you find yourself one day burning at a stake, that you would honor God and give Him praise as you feel your flesh being burned from toe to waist to head. Yes, if you read Voice of the Martyr or Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can read a whole bunch of testimonies of people praising God, giving things that I have my eternal salvation in heaven as their flesh is being burned. For us, this is enough strength to honor God so that we won't cuss or murmur. Or gossip. I don't know what it looks like today. So we don't just live for ourselves selfishly. He also gives a power. <coughs> he prays for power that you would have a spiritual vitality in you. That you would live lives that would be abiding in Christ. That you would know his presence in your life. And that you would do so with a might. Um, this is a power that overcomes resistance. The things that might be coming at you, challenges, difficulties. And so this is the type of power that God prays for the believers. I mean, excuse me, Paul and Timothy prays for the church of Colossae. Guess what? This is the kind of prayers that we need to pray for what? Each other. Each other. 
one another. It is so important. I need these prayers badly. You need these prayers badly. Why? Because we see in the latter part of verse 11, very specifically, this prayer for the right knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, and the powering of the Holy Spirit is very practical. It's so that we would have endurance and patience with joy. This is supernatural work of God that He wants to do in your life and mine. What is patience? Patience is distinct from endurance in this way, or endurance is, <coughs> is distinct from patience in this way. Patience looks more to being patient with difficult circumstances. With difficult circumstances. It could be something at school, your marriage, your home, your church, your, your roommate, your child. But it's patience in difficult circumstances. Okay? You could be, <clears throat> it could be a number of circumstances, but the call is to be patient. Our world, especially in America, is, called, is traced this up to be instant. We want it done in a week, a month, a year. A year is too long. It happened in five years, ten years. That's even too long for most of us. I want you to know that the work of the church is a perspective of decades, not weeks. It's a, it's a lifetime. Um, it's, we're not popping up McDonald's and, and Chick-fil-A's out here. Okay, those go up quickly. Church is a, a, a labor of love. It takes a long time. Um, the sanctification of people's lives um, is the next idea. Long-suffering refers to working and enduring with difficult people. Difficult people. These may be contrasting ideas, perspectives, personalities. You might be someone who's very modern, working with someone who's very traditional. Okay? We have some of that here. <laughs> Laugh, right? No, I don't know. But that's here, right? We need to be long-suffering. Um, that's the type of patience. So this pretty much covers everything. Endurance and patience with one another. And so there's a long perspective of allowing God to work in your life this is how we grow in Christ. And so, how is there joy in this? The beautiful joy in this is knowing that God is at work. You're not by yourself. You don't need to think of... You don't need to play God and, you know, deal with your problems your own way. There could be a number of ways you deal with your problems your own way. It could be drinking... It could be flipping out. It could be sitting more. It could be saying, hey, I'm done with this marriage. I'm just going to do it my own way. I'm going to leave. Um, church, church people do similar things. I don't want to have any more patience for the circumstances or these people. So I'm just going to deal with it my way. But James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, gives us a perspective where he wants to take the lemons of life and make lemonade out of them in a cliche but yet true kind of way. He says here, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And the steadfastness ha <coughs> excuse me, has have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete.
trying to groom Christ in your life. If you literally jump out of every trial in your life, you're missing out on what God is doing in your life because you hit the eject button too fast. You don't want Him to work in your life in those ways. So, this to know that God is working out His plan in your life, particularly more of Jesus in you. Verse 12, Paul knows this, and he wants the church of Colossae to know this, and so what do they do? They think they, they're giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, on what basis does he qualify us? Well, we see he's done this in light of verse 13. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. These are two huge things. He has delivered us from danger, namely hell. He delivered us from the penalty sent by rescuing us through the gospel. The idea of deliverance here, or excuse me, uh, the second word, transfer us, is literally moving us out of a bad location or bad situation to a new. And so we see that <coughs> this transference has taken place. Um, there was a time under history records under Antiochus that the Greeks transported at least 2,000 Jews from Babylon to Colossae. They knew what transference meant on a human level, but we're talking about transference from, <coughs> from us to the kingdom of God of his beloved. Verse 14, well, we don't need to read verse 14 because that's not what we're covering this week. I'm going to close here with this illustration as we consider the three practices of gospel-centered pulse, worship, and prayer. Listen carefully. Um, I've heard this uh, story a number of times, and it continues to ring true with me. I know this story is invisible chains, invisible chains. The baby elephants are in captivity are often controlled in this particular way. When the elephants are, when the baby elephants are young, they're tied by rope small, actually pretty skinny rope, but enough rope that it would tie back an elephant when they're young. But the reality is that years have gone by and the elephant has gotten stronger. <coughs> but the elephant looks at these ropes and these chains that have been on them, their lives from the very beginning as obstacles that they cannot overcome, they cannot break, because their mind, what they believe, has trained them to believe that they have no power to break this little rope. And so they don't realize that they have grown and they could break this rope. The same thing for believers, and I'm learning this more and more each day, is that God has set us free from the penalty sin, from bondage. We have this power not because we've grown up and gotten bigger. We have this power by virtue of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God working in us. But we still believe like we are non-believers. And so we pray small prayers. We, we think we need to do human and our own devices to deal with our sins. But God gives us this power to be patient and to endure difficult people or difficult situations. And so he empowers us with his wisdom, with his understanding, and with God's knowledge to live kingdom lives empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so what's the difference between living this way and not? 
is your belief in Jesus Christ or the lack of belief or really just believing that you are still dead in your trespasses and sin and you just can't do anything about it. Father, I thank you so much for this three sermons in one. I pray, Lord, that it would be helpful for me, for everyone here, that you would help us to digest it really well. Lord, that we would experience your power, your truth working in our life.